Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. All Good Things was marketed, produced, etc. as Bob Durst's life story dramatized. Now, in advance of the movie's release, Bob Durst obtained a screenplay, a copy of the movie. And after reading the script, Durst attempted to contact Andrew Jarecki by phone. Anyway, so I have an idea. I have no idea if it makes any sense, but, but you're the one to talk to about. Sure. That would it make sense there to be an interview with me related to what's in the movie? Now remember, that movie that Mr. Durst has watched depicted him as a triple murderer. And Mr. Durst's response to seeing that movie is going to be, the movie was very, very close in much of the ways about what pretty much happened. After three days of interviews in December of 2010, Mark Smerling and Andrew Jarecki continued their research in hopes that they could construct a documentary out of the footage. In August of 2011, the filmmakers interviewed Susan's son, Sarah, and encouraged him to look through old files and personal effects. So he goes back through and he finds the letter. A year and a half before the murders, Durst sent Susan a letter. This is the letter that is referred to as the Sarah letter and the Sarah envelope. Lewin tells the jury that the filmmakers wanted to confront Durst with the envelope and to catch his reaction on tape. So I want to, I want to show you the envelope that that letter came in. Would you read me the address on this envelope? Robert Durst, 42467 Wall Street, New York, UR10005. And who you sent it to? Susan Berman, 1527 Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, California. Beverly spelled wrong, California, 90210. So obviously I want to ask you about the cadaver note, the famous cadaver note. Can you read me the spelling of Beverly, Beverly Hills? Hills? Police, 1527 Benedict Canyon, cadaver. Same misspelling. Now towards the conclusion of the interview, while Durst was still wearing his microphone, he went to use the bathroom. Kill them all, of course. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the final day of the prosecution's opening statement. Judge Wyndham exudes his usual courtroom zen and wears a warm smile. His square frame glasses sit high on his nose, and a daffodil yellow tie peeks out from his robe. Wyndham gestures to the jury, welcoming them back to court. I expect this will be a, a shorter day today. 
which I think you'll appreciate. Wyndham credits his judicial prowess to his 22 years as a public defender prior to taking the bench. When he took up the robes in 2008, he told local news sources that while his role in the judicial system was changing, he was not. Wyndham said it was his goal as a judge to act firmly and decisively out of compassion. In the courtroom, that compassion often looks like patience, an unrelenting calm in the face of squabbling attorneys, technical difficulties, and opening statements that continue for days. So, are you ready to continue with your opening statement? You may. I promise this is the last day of my opening. Deputy DA John Lewin reminds the jury that after the jinx aired on HBO in 2015, detectives from the LAPD obtained a warrant for Robert Durst's arrest. Investigators then traveled to Houston, and these are RHD detectives, LAPD detectives, a group of them, they traveled to Houston, and they went there with the intent to arrest Bob Durst in custody. On March 14, 2015, with the aid of the FBI, investigators determined that Durst was making phone calls from a payphone at the JW Marriott in New Orleans. Generally, it would be difficult for detectives to find Durst based on payphone information alone. But Durst called his voicemail to check for messages, which tipped off investigators to his location. Two FBI agents, William Williams, who goes by Chuck, and Crystal Bender quickly respond to the JW Marriott. When they arrive, they actually see in the lobby of the hotel there's a person they believe is Bob Durst. So they approach him. Special Agent Williams will testify that he repeatedly called out Mr. Durst, but the individual who will later be identified as Bob Durst would not respond, would not acknowledge his name. FBI agents identify themselves and they detain Durst in the lobby. Now Durst eventually tells the agents that he checked into the hotel under the name Everett Ward. The alias was another person from Durst's past. 14 years earlier, Everett Ward purchased a bow saw at the same Chalmers where Durst bought the saw he used to dismember Morris Black's body. Everett's report had been given in discovery during the Galveston trial. Now, investigators will ultimately identify and search the hotel room at the Marriott where Durst was staying. Inside the room, the investigators found a fake Texas ID with Durst's photo and Everett Ward's name, Robert Durst's real passport, maps of Florida and Cuba, $44,631 in cash, a hyper-realistic latex mask, and a loaded 38 caliber revolver. Now, the next day, on Sunday, March 15th, myself and detectives interviewed Bob Durst. That's the March 15, 2015 interview. Now, just for you to know, the evidence can show, Mr. Durst was not forced to have that interview. He could have said, I don't want to talk. I'm not interested in speaking with you. But he agreed to the interview, and the evidence is going to show that he made some very damaging admissions. Now, before starting the interview, Mr. Durst was given blanket, coffee, and advice of his Miranda rights. Durst's comfort during this interview is important to the prosecution's case because the defense is likely to argue that what Roberts said was the result of coercion, that he was exhausted and felt backed into a corner, so he told the officers what they wanted to hear. Knowing this defensive angle, Lewin repeatedly tells the jury that Durst's participation in the interview was completely voluntary. 
Now, it's also going to be clear that Mr. Durst could have ended this interview at any time. He has a right, as everybody says, to say, you know what, I don't want to talk anymore. But he didn't. Instead, he was interviewed for nearly three hours. Now, during the interview, he was confronted with the fact that um, despite his typical willingness to talk, that he seemed very reluctant in many interviews that he had previously done to talk about Susan. He would talk about Morris, he would talk about Kathy, but he would not talk about Susan. In the following clip, Lewin references Mark and Andrew. That's Mark Smerling and Andrew Jarecki, the producers of The Jinx. What all the interviews of Mark and Andrew, you there was one person that you seemed the least comfortable talking about. Do you know who that was? Susan, Kathy. Susan. Susan, oh, yeah. 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 You, you would talk about Kathy, you would talk about Morris, and I was concerned that if you found out that I was looking at this case. Yeah, I would have backed off, going to Cuba, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Who knows what so, Mr. Dirk, during that conversation, honestly tells me, yeah, if I would have known you were looking at this case, I would have been in Cuba. By the way, you saw the map that he had. Evidence is going to demonstrate that Bob Durst was on his way out of the country when he was arrested. Now, the subject of Susan's murder continued during this interview with the defendant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna lay my cards on the table. I'm here talking to you today because I truly believe, Bob, I don't think you feel that badly about Morris. I don't know how you feel about Kathy, but here's what I do know. I know that when you killed Susan, that was not something you wanted to do. Do, do you know how I know that? I mean, are you interested in why I know that? I'm gonna stay away from killing Susan. So Mr. Durst's answer is not, I killed Susan. Why are you accusing me of that? His answer was, I'm gonna stay away from killing Susan, which the evidence is gonna show is not a denial, it's an admission. Lewin tells the jury that Durst made several admissions during the New Orleans interview. I want to, you know, and I'm going to just ask this straight out. If you, if you had killed Kathy, would you tell me? No. So Mr. Durst was honest enough to an ask, hey, listen, if you killed Kathy, would you tell me? He says, no. He was asked a related question. If you had killed Susan, would you tell me? No. Now, during the interview, he discussed the thing that really bothered him about all good things. And again, it's not going to end up being the allegation that he's responsible for the murder of three people. What was the thing that bothered you most about all good things? You said it to Andrew. You remember killing all the dogs. Lewin tells the jury that Durst is fixated on the depiction of his killing the dog because it's the one killing in all good things that was fictional. According to the prosecution, Durst wasn't bothered by the film's portrayal of the murder of Kathy, Susan, or Morris because he knew those events were based on the truth. Now, the interview went on to discuss Durst's love of dogs. You're a dog person, right? I have a, uh, I have a dog. I'm very much into my dog. Believe it or not, in me working on this case, you know, I, I, have, I have young kids. 
And my daughter was afraid. She said, hey, is, is he going to hurt us? I said, no, he's not going to hurt you. And then she said, um, is there any way that he's going to hurt um, that he's going to hurt our dog? And I said, you know what? There's one thing about Bob that I'm very confident of. Bob loves dogs. Bob would never hurt a dog. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. You, 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 like, you like dogs, I think, much more than people. Is that right? Yes. Now, during the interview, Durst was presented with the idea that he doesn't kill because he enjoys killing. What the evidence will show in this case is that although the murders that Bob Durst committed are horrible, they're not crazy, and they're not the signs of a deranged individual. What the evidence will show is that Bob Durst killed Kathy Durst in the midst of a nasty divorce. That he killed Susan Berman because he was afraid that Susan Berman was going to reveal what he knew. And Morris Black knew who he was, was able to connect him to his name and to New York. They were having issues and arguing about where Morris was going to live. And in the end, Bob Durst eliminated a problem. Cruel, illegal, immoral, homicidal, but not crazy. And again, when he was presented with this idea that he doesn't kill because he enjoys killing, he did not deny the allegation. I told my, told my daughter, listen, Bob is somebody who, Bob doesn't kill because he enjoys killing. That's what Cody Gonzalez says. If you back him into a corner, yeah. he'll kill you. That's what Cody Gonzalez says, replies Durst. If you back him, meaning Bob Durst, into a corner, he'll kill you. Cody Cazales is the Galveston detective who served as the lead investigator on the Morris Black case. Silver-haired with a horseshoe mustache and a square jaw, Cazales was interviewed for the Jinx and made an appearance at the show's premiere in New York. John Lewin asks the jury to assess Durst's mindset when he quoted Cazales. You heard the statement I'm explaining, you know, Bob, you're not somebody who kills because you enjoy killing. And he tells you, you back me into a corner, and I'll kill you. That's essentially what he is saying. He's repeating what Detective Casalis says, but he's not saying that's wrong. He's not saying that's inaccurate. He's the one bringing it up. Now, what the evidence is going to show is that Bob Durst's favorite subject in the world is Bob Durst. Bob Durst likes to talk. He likes to talk about Bob Durst. And when he does, he makes mistakes. Now, at the end of the interview, Durst, in essence, confessed to Kathy and Susan's murders by admitting that he had details that he had not yet provided. So as you're listening, what the evidence will show is that Mr. Durst is being pressed to tell the truth, to say what he knows. Mr. Durst's response is not going to be, how can I tell you anything? I don't know anything. I'm not involved in this. That's not what he's going to say. He's going to give an answer that only somebody who is responsible, who knows what happened, would respond that way. So I would like to talk to you when you come back from court today. That's going to be up to you 
what you do. I don't know whether it'll be a lawyer there today. I don't know what that lawyer is going to tell you. If, he's going to tell me to shut my mouth, of course. Well, and, 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 and this is what I'll tell you. You have every right to listen to your lawyer and to do what your lawyer says. You get back is I want to find out what is it that we can discuss where I can get the truth about some of the things that you've said you, you couldn't really answer for me. But you, you have told me, correct, that there is, you know what I want, correct? Yes, you'd like some details from me if I knew yes. about where Kathy's body is. And about what happened to Susan. Those and about what happened okay. to Susan. And, and you would agree that you're in the position, if you want, to tell me more than you have so far. about that. I'm not about to go that far. Okay. But well, well, but wait a minute, because you're telling me, though, that I want to understand when you're saying, tell me what, what Well, you asked me I what I thought you wanted to hear. I think what you wanted to hear is, what did you do with Kathy? Right. And I think you want me to go through details of, of, of Susan. I do. Okay, so now, what would I ask for? Uh, tell me. If I tell you those things, I'm pleading guilty. Okay. And I'm pleading guilty. I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles, to California, and doing my time. Bob Durst was admitting that he had the answers to those questions. Answers he could only have if, in fact, he was the killer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The day after Lewin's interview with Robert Durst in New Orleans, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office filed murder charges against Durst. So with Durst in custody and unable to flee, the investigation continued. And at this point in time, there was somebody that Detective Shamlian wanted to speak to. At the top of the list was Nick Chabon, who was Durst's extremely close friend. Uh, and also extremely close to Susan. So on April 6, 2015, so this is about three weeks after Mr. Durst has been arrested. The evidence will show that um, multiple attempts were made after Mr. Durst's arrest to contact Nick Chabon, and then Nick Chabon did not want to talk. And you're gonna hear from Nick Chabon, he's gonna tell you that you know what, he's avoiding having contact because um, Bob Durst was his good friend. So he finally returns to investigators and prosecutors' call. And from the start of the conversation, the evidence can show that Nick Shaven was reluctant to provide any damaging information against his close friend. Lewin tells the jury that Chavin said he needed time to think and that he was conflicted between his loyalties to Susan and to Robert. During one of the phone calls with investigators, Chavin was asked specifically if Durst had ever confessed to him 
that he murdered Susan or Kathy. Have you ever asked Bob, have you ever asked him, hey, Bob, did you kill Kathy? Or is that another one of those ones you don't want to answer? That's one of those I don't want to answer. Chavin's narration is clipped, but he says, that's one of the ones I don't want to answer. I know this is tough, but I want you to think about this for a second. Right. Um, forgetting about Bob for a second, Susan was your, was your close friend, right? Yep, absolutely. Forgetting yeah. about Bob for a minute, do you want the person who's responsible for her death, do you want that person held accountable? Well, you remember what Susan told me about Bob, which was, there's nothing we can do for her now. She's gone, but, you know, he's not. And, and okay, and so is what, the way I'm taking that, Nick, is you're kind of, the same thing that Susan said about Kathy, you're now kind of saying to yourself about Susan, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he's alive. According to Nick Chavin, after Kathy's death, Susan told him, Kathy's gone, Bob's still here, we need to protect Bob. Now, talking about Susan's death, Chavin seems to repurpose Susan's words. Nick Chavin's now saying, Susan's gone, Bob's still here, we need to protect Bob. Now, Nick Chavin was very clear in this call that he was having a lot of problem and a lot of difficulty trying to balance his loyalties to his two best friends. It's very clear with what you're saying, it's very clear that you're carrying a big weight right now and you're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. Am I being a disloyal friend? That's exactly right. You know, go ahead, keep going. I'm yeah, sorry. am I being a disloyal friend? You know, um, I can't bring Kathy back, I can't bring Susan back, but I, I will tell you that what's right is right and I think you know I don't have to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Um, Bob has said things to you, and I think you know what the right thing to do is right now. And if you can just get yourself over the hurdle, you know, it's almost like ripping a Band-Aid off, Nick. Just yeah, let me tell you, it's real, real sad. Everything you're saying is just reaches right into me. And to me it's exactly what I feel. Evan's going to show that during this conversation, he would not say what he knew. But he did say that he would do so on another day. I mean, Nick, in the end, we are all responsible in life for the choices that we make. You can't be responsible for what Bob has done, but you can be responsible for covering up for him. And, you know, it's time. Which I haven't had to do it. Which I had to do it no, no, you haven't because no one has. So I can tell, Nick, it's very funny. You've been kind of waiting for this call from us. And trying to figure out how you were gonna, what you were gonna say, and how are you gonna handle it? Am I right? You're right, 100%. Okay. Well, sorry. Right, so listen. So here you are. This is kind of the moment of truth. Um, just let it out, Nick. Tell us what Bob said. Just get it out. Lewin tells the jury that Nick Chavin still wasn't ready to rip off the band-aid. It wasn't until a few days later that Chavin called investigators, prepared to share what he knew about Robert Durst. And this is when Nick Chavin began to mention a dinner that he and Bob had had in Harlem. Nick Chavin told the investigators that prior to dinner, Robert said he wanted to talk about Kathy and Susan, but the entire meal passed and he never brought them up. After food and a few drinks, they walked outside, and as they were about to part ways, Chavin said, Bob, you were going to tell me about Susan. 
Then, according to Chavin, Durst shrugged, mumbled something, and walked away. He told investigators that he, quote, took Durst not denying it as meaning something, end quote. Now, the evidence is going to show that when Nick Shaven eventually says what happened, it's everything he just said, except for on April 7th, he wasn't ready to say what Father told him. He himself did not want to believe, did not want to accept that his best friend could have murdered their other best friend. He was in denial, he's going to tell you. And he wasn't ready to kind of face the facts. Lewin explains that in addition to Nick Chavin, investigators sought information from Stuart and Emily Altman, two of Robert Durst's closest friends. Stuart went to high school with Robert and later became an accomplished criminal defense attorney in New York. Durst and the Altmans attended parties and went on vacations together. In the early 70s, Stuart introduced Robert to Kathy. But on occasion, Stuart was more than a friend to Durst. He was his attorney. When the Altmans were called to testify in Durst's trial, they challenged the subpoenas, arguing that they were prohibited from talking about Durst due to attorney-client privilege. Stuart being his former lawyer and Emily being Stuart's sole employee at his law office. Ultimately, the subpoenas were approved. Emily reluctantly testified in Durst's preliminary hearing first. She was accompanied by two of her own attorneys, both paid for by Robert Durst. Now, Emily made clear during her testimony that Bob Durst was a close friend. She admitted that he was godfather to her son. During her testimony, Emily repeatedly claimed a lack of memory, which prevented, which uh, presented with the most simple of questions. And you're going to hear, you're going to listen to her testimony. And the evidence is going to show that she's up on the stand trying to protect her friend. Now, on July 26, 2017, during Emily's second day of testimony, the prosecution initiated a line of questioning inquiring whether Durst had ever told her where he had been at the time of Susan's murder. After much resistance, the following exchange occurred, which revealed shocking information. Did Bob Durst ever tell you in the course of your relationship as friends that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder? I think he said he was in Los Angeles, excuse me, at some time, but I don't remember him specifically saying he was there when Susie Berman was murdered. When you say he said he was in Los Angeles at some time, you don't mean just generally he's visiting Los Angeles. You mean that he told you your understanding was that he was in Los Angeles at the time that Susan Berman was murdered. Isn't that correct? He said he was in Los Angeles. At the time Susan Berman was murdered, correct? He didn't say that, no. no. What he said he was in Los Angeles. When he's saying he's in Los Angeles, you're talking about at the time Susan Byrne was murdered, correct? In December. Ma'am, are you aware, as you sit here today, that Mr. Durst has never admitted to investigators or to the media that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000? Are you aware of that? No, I'm not. Did he mention a hotel or where, what he was doing here? I think he mentioned, I'll be from Beverly Hilton, I don't know if this is a comment. 
So he told you that he was staying at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered. Is that correct? Yes. Ma'am, at that time, did you think that was important information that the police might need to know? No. At any point in time, in the last 17 years almost, has it ever occurred to you that, you know what, that might be important information that the authorities should know about? No, Emily says. Ma'am, isn't it true that you chose your friendship with that man, you chose your friendship over justice for Susan Berman? This was the first day of a two-day hearing where Emily Altman would give testimony. On that day, she clearly stated that Robert Durst told her that he was in Beverly Hills around the time of Susan Berman's murder. The next day, July 27, Emily returned to court for more testimony. During her cross-examination by Mr. DeGarrett, and for the first time, Emily suddenly provided an alternative explanation for Durst's admission. In response to a leading question, Emily stated that the source of her statement that Durst was in Los Angeles at the Beverly Hilton might not have been Robert Durst. But she got up there and said, you know what, maybe I didn't hear it from Bob. Instead, Emily now said the information might have been provided to her by her husband. Now, approximately one month later, again, after multiple efforts to avoid testifying himself, Stuart Altman finally took the witness stand. So on day one of her testimony, Emily Altman said Bob Durst told her that he was in Beverly Hills around the time of the Berman murder. On day two, she said that she may have heard this information from her husband, Stewart. Now, Stewart testified that he told Emily, a witness uh, who he knew was still testifying under oath, that she had been wrong in her testimony. So Stewart Altman is up there and he's testifying that my wife knew that what she had said was damaging that it was going to hurt Bob Durst, and I told her, you're wrong. Now, Stewart testified that contrary to Emily's testimony on July 27, 2017, he made clear that he never told her that Durst had ever told him that he was in Beverly Hills at the time of Susan's murder. This he said, she said about who said what can be a bit confusing. So let's break it down. Stewart admits he spoke with Emily after her first day of testimony, but he denies he told her that Bob was in Beverly Hills on the day of Susan's murder. Instead, he says he told her that she was wrong about the fact that Bob was in town. But Emily Altman's reluctant statement still places Robert near Susan's home when she was killed. And of course, there's another piece of evidence that places Robert Durst in Susan Berman's home around the time of her murder, the so-called cadaver note the letter sent to the Beverly Hills police shortly after Susan's murder, presumably to alert them to the location of the body. Now, what has Bob Durst's position been over the years on whether he wrote the cadaver note? What has his position been? 2010, talking to you directly in Smerlin. Well, to begin with, you didn't write the, write the cadaver note, is that what I you're saying? I didn't write the cadaver note. Um, can you think of a reason why somebody might write a note like that. I can't imagine. Can't imagine. 2012 with you, Ricky. So 
I guess the question is, did you write the cadaver note? No, I didn't write the cadaver note. 2015, when he was interviewed in the New Orleans jail, the issue is going to be, there's kind of two choices that you have, two ways you could, you could go. You could say, listen, I went down there. And you would have to explain why you went down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw that and the, the, the people's comments and, 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 and the stuff like that. What do you Somebody mean could have gone into the house and, and saw that Susan was lying there. Right, right. No, 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 what I'm telling you is, I'm, I'm just saying, that did not happen. You agree, you did not just find Susan's body and somebody else killed her. I did not find Susan's body. Durs has also made clear, absolutely, and without reservation, that whoever wrote the cadaver note is in fact the person who murdered Susan Berman. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. Durst also discussed the writer of the cadaver note during his interview with John Lewin in New Orleans. First of all, you agree, as you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter, they killed Susan. Agree? You see, I don't know that. I mean, maybe there were two people who killed Susan. Okay. It doesn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One, pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh, oh okay, no, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. After many years of adamantly and repeatedly denying that he wrote the cadaver note, saying that only the killer could have written it, on December 24th, 2019, Dirk stipulated that he wrote the cadaver note. Durst's admission that he wrote the cadaver note was first reported on New Year's Eve 2019 by Charles V. Bagley in the New York Times. Bagley also quotes defense attorney Dick DeGaron as maintaining that, quote, Bob didn't kill Susan Berman and he doesn't know who did, end quote. The final evidentiary bullet point in Lewin's three-day opening presentation to the jury comes from the testimony of Nick Chavin. Now, Nick Chavin would ultimately recount in court the rest of that conversation from that dinner in Harlem in December of 2014. And this is what he said under oath while on the witness stand. Dinner concluded and it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then, he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy? And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. Dick Chavin said at that dinner, Bob Durst said to him, 
it was her or me, I had no choice. Lewin lets those words hang for the jurors to consider. And then he wraps up his ultra-marathon introduction. Now, the evidence at trial, we're going to show that Robert Durst is responsible that he killed Kathy Durst. That he killed her and that he got rid of her body. That's what we will prove. We will show that when the reinvestigation happened and when Susan Berman told him that, you know what, I'm going to talk to investigators, that she sealed her fate, that he drove down to Los Angeles in that Ford Explorer, that he was led into the house, that he waited for Susan to turn her back on her best friend, someone she loved and trusted, and he executed her at point-blank range. The evidence is going to show that he murdered his friend Morris Black, dismembered his corpse, dumped the body parts like they were trash into Galveston Bay. And then he did that because, again, Morris Black was a connection to Kathy. The evidence will show when Bob Durst killed Kathy, he killed Susan and Morris as well. Because once that happened, once he did that, there was no turning back. And Bob Durst, as the evidence will show, he is a person who's going to protect and take care of Bob Durst. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what the evidence is going to show in this case. It's been long and it's complicated because Mr. Durst has committed a lot of crimes. A few months from now, I'll get up here and I'll ask you to finally hold him accountable for what he has done. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin returns to his seat, passing by Dick DeGarren and the rest of the defense counsel. On the next day, they will deliver their opening, laying the roadmap for how they intend to prove that Robert Durst is not guilty, at least not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. He did find her body shortly after someone had shot her in the back of the head. He was coming to visit her. When Bob showed up and found her dead, he panicked. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He's run away all his life. Bob fully accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durst. 
for dismembering more to black body. It's just a slip of the tongue, but unlike his earlier missteps, it lands like an anvil in the courtroom. Dick DeGaran said Bob accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durst. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's part of his makeup. There's two sides to the story. Bob Durst is going to testify. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Caracombe. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Tarakum. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.